Welcome to this week's episode of the Photo Detective Podcast. I'm Maureen Taylor, the Photo Detective. I'm beyond thrilled to let you know that my book, Family Photo Detective, has been updated and re-released for 2023. In fact, it's been out of print for a number of years, so I am pretty excited about having it back in print. My book is the easiest way to unlock the secrets behind your family photos by helping figure out key elements and how you can identify more about your family through pictures. You can find it on my website at MaureenTaylor.com. It's right on the front page, so you can't miss it. And it's available in both ebook and print formats. I'm Maureen Taylor, the photo detective. I really love family photographs, all of them, from the mystery images you find in shoeboxes and albums to the pictures you snap with your digital devices. No mystery is too small. A simple question about an image can lead to new stories of your ancestors. This means you can count on me to help you identify the people in them, offer solutions for preserving and organizing them, and yes, even guide you in the various ways to gather and share picture stories with your relatives. Welcome to The Photo Detective, where we cover historical image analysis, genealogy, and how to work with your family photo collection. pretty lucky to live walking distance from a National Historic Landmark. The Lippitt House is one of the properties owned by Preserve Rhode Island, and it is Providence, Rhode Island's premier Victorian house museum. Once inside this 1865 house, you'll understand its landmark status. It has one of the best preserved interiors in America, allowing visitors to experience exceptional Victorian design and American craftsmanship. My guest shares how an 1893 photo of the house allowed them to recreate pieces of the Victorian decor. It is definitely not a stuffy old house. Following the Lippitt family's example of public service, the museum's cultural programming promotes civic engagement, the arts, and the history of Providence. My guest is Carrie Taylor. She came to Providence's Lippitt House Museum to be its first director in 2013. Prior to leading Lippitt House, Carrie was the registrar and then collections manager at Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home outside of Charlottesville, Virginia, for 15 years. Before moving to Virginia, she worked in the curatorial department at the Atlanta History Center. She was elected Phi Beta Kappa and graduated cum laude from the University of Georgia with a bachelor's degree in history. She then earned a master's degree in public history with a museum studies concentration from the University of South Carolina where she held a graduate assistantship at the McKissick Museum in Columbia. She serves on the board of the Friends of the Providence University Library and is a graduate of the Seminar for Historical Administration. So my guest today is Carrie Taylor, the director of the Lippitt House Museum in Providence, Rhode Island. And we're not related, although, you know, who knows, right? It's a Taylor. (laughs) Well, I think if you do enough genealogy research, you will find that everyone is related who wants to be, right? Depending on which path you take. Exactly, exactly. So many connections, so many places to go. And Carrie, actually, the whole Lippitt House Museum is like walking distance. 
from my house, which means I've been in there more times than I can count on hands, fingers. We're always happy to see you. I'm always happy to go in. It's a stellar house. It's beautiful. Mid-19th century. And one of the things we want to talk about today is the Lippitt house was in the Lippitt family for a very long time. Yes, it was. So it was built by... Yeah, so the house was Henry Lippitt and Mary Ann Lippitt had the house built for them. Construction started in 1863, and then the family moved in in December 1865. And one of the cool things about the house is that it stayed within the Lippitt family for four generations. It was a private residence until 1979, until the family set up a trust and left the house to the organization I work for, Preserve Rhode Island, with the intent that the house be preserved and open to the public as a museum. But when the trust was set up, how much stuff was still left in the house that belonged to the Lippets? And, and that's really what we're going to talk about today is how you took these old photographs and sort of recreated sort of what the house looked like, but how much stuff was left in the house? There was a considerable amount of uh, property that conveyed with the house when when it became property of of Preserve Rhode Island. But just like in any um, old space, in any old house, there is, you know, change over time. And so in any um, historic house museum or any space, you're going to see that objects come and go. And so when um, it actually opened to them as as an open to the public as a museum in 1980, 89, there was quite a few original furnishings in the house. Of course, um, even when the first generation lived in the house from the 1860s until the 1890s, objects came and went during their own occupation. And then since there were subsequent generations, the house did change. But overall, the house is very intact from what it looked like and how it was furnished um, when the family first moved into 1865. And I think that's one of the reasons when I came um, to the museum seven years ago, I thought it was so intriguing. There was so much original material in the house, um, both in the furnishings and the structure itself. It had a lot of integrity. And when I was doing my initial research to kind of get familiar with the house, one of the great photographic resources that I um, discovered was the Historic American Building Survey, a survey of significant buildings across the United States that are now the photos are housed at the Library of Congress. And so I was able to see this great collection of photos of Lippitt House in the mid-20th century and then compare those to photos that were taken in the 1890s. And it was really remarkable, not only the original appearance of the, the surfaces, the, the walls and the ceilings in the house, but also how many of the original furnishings were still in the house when I arrived in 2013, which were in the house when um, the Lippitt family, the first generation of the Lippitt family lived there in the 19th century. That's really incredible. I mean, is that unusual? Because it's almost like a time capsule. Yeah, um, usually I don't like to say, you know, use the word time capsule because I think we have a very engaging and active organization. I don't want to give the impression that it's just stuck in time, but it is, I think, a great testament to the preservation and advocacy and kind of the responsibility that several generations of the Lippitt family took to preserve the house and the furnishings. I think we were very uh, fortunate that um, unlike many old houses um, that have several different uses over time. And so once 
and it went directly from a family home to a museum. So I think that really precluded a lot of alterations to the house that you might see if different purposes happen in the house besides as a single family residence transforming to a, a public museum. Well, it's sort of respectful on the part of the family to maintain that legacy instead of a time capsule. Let's call it the legacy of the house. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's my personal opinion. The, the last couple that lived in, in, in the house were the Doolittles. And I think it's something when you are responsible, that's where the Doolittles raised their family and even for um, a, a few years lived there with some of their grandchildren. But when you are running that house, um, as, as um, Mrs. Doolittle did, that is your grandmother's house. That's your grandparents' house. And I think you have a different kind of sensibility if you know that this is a family house that you're continuing that legacy as opposed to if it was a new family that moved in. Like I said, the house was completed in 1865, so it has a very high Victorian aesthetic. There's a lot of decoration and all the surfaces, and there's a lot of furniture, which, you know, to modern sensibilities, frankly, is not everyone's cup of tea. I mean, the Victorians thought that more is more, and they wanted it to be a delight of the eyes and wanted each of the aspects from the lighting to the painted um, walls to the decorative uh, flooring and carpets to the furniture, all to kind of play and bounce off each other. But that is not really kind of the modern 20th century aesthetic where clean lines and architecture are emphasized over what, what some people would call a very cluttered and multi colored, you know, palette. Not everyone would want to live in that kind of house for 24-7. Well, it is stunning when you walk in the front door and you look down at the floors and then you look up at the ceilings and you look at the fixtures and then you look at the furniture and it is, it is it a feast for the eyes. That's what we, we think so too. So I do not decorate my personal home in that style, but I definitely appreciate it for what it is. And it's really an, an evocative of what high style um, interior design was at the time. The idea was to make something new and modern by taking the best of all the different historical periods and by putting them together, taking, you know, kind of cherry picking, taking the best of each era, when you put it all together in the same space, that's what makes it new. That's what makes it American. And that's what makes it good. Yeah. Now, those photographs at the Library of Congress were actually quite useful to you yeah, it's it's really great. Um, in my prior museum experience, I have often worked at sites and, and, and museums that predate the photographic age. And so having historical photos, not only of the mid-19th century ones taken as to document the house, I think it was in 1961, I believe, that show the house when the Doolittles were living there. But another great cache of photographs are the ones that were taken by the family as part of the probate um, process in about 1893. And so you really get to use these photos to see how the house looked like during that first generation of the family's occupation. And it's really a great resource that everyone working in historic houses don't always have. The house I worked at before was primarily an 18th century building. So we did have photos, uh, later 19th century photos, but a lot had changed over time. And so having contemporary photos showing how the house looked like when the family lived there are really great for us to kind of recreate the spaces so that the lip it, the house looks the way that the Lippet family would have known it when they lived there. So in particular, the curtains 
in one of the rooms that I'll sh- everyone will see because it'll be the, the promotional slide for this podcast. I mean, how do you, I mean, it's a photograph. So you look at it, but you can't actually tell necessarily what fabric or color of fabric was used. So how did you put all the pieces together? Yeah, so yeah, working in museums and, re- and researching historic interiors, you use kind of all the, the tools in the historian toolbox. You use a variety of sources to put it together and hopefully it, you can have enough resources so then you can recreate what was there. And so like I said, said when I started, these historic photos were really a treasure trove of information to try to understand what the house looked like when the family lived there. But there are other documentation that we are able to use, um, written documentation, that really is kind of like a puzzle piece. And so there were really three major components, three different resources that when you analyze them and put it together, they really gave us a picture of what that space looked like, but then also most importantly, what those window treatments were, because the room is really bare. It was designed to have very elaborate window hangings, and you realize when those aren't there, a major component of the whole aesthetic of the room is really lacking, and so it's just kind of um, a, a time game, I'll say. Textiles inherently are more fragile than other media. So when you go to any kind of historic house museum, the window treatments, they're just going to take a lot of abuse. Um, In a high style house like the Lippets, they're going to be made out of silk and silk just shatters. They're going to be hanging in the windows. The reception room is the space that we started and that gets a lot of Southern exposure. And so it's just a time game that with enough light, the silk is just going to give up and it's just going to shatter and go away. So even though there were a lot of original furnishings and artworks and decorative art materials in general throughout the house, the textiles for the most part, with only one exception, don't survive. And that's just because of um, the physical materials just couldn't survive 150 years with a lot of sun exposure. So we had to use the resources, both written and photographic, to recreate what it looked like. So Henry Lippitt, when the house was built, was a general contractor. So we know a lot about what the house, how the house was was furnished um, when the family moved in. But they lived in the house from 1865 until 1891. And so tastes changed. And so we have this great record with the decorator that the family used in the 1880s to redecorate this front reception room. And there were a lot of specifics listed about what the window treatments were, what the um, tie backs were made out of. There were lace curtains. There were shades that were what called French pulls that would come down and, you know, cover up the, the windows from, from, from the top. So we use the um, invoice from the decorators that calls everything out. How many yards of satin damask? How many yards of silk for the lining? A lot of details. Then we were able to use the historic photograph But then the other important photo um, or um, object that helped us in addition to the photo was the physical evidence because it's cool that we do have the space. So there was a lot of most of the original hardware was still intact and we were also able to kind of map 
the plaster surround and the woodwork around the windows themselves. So we could see where the point of um, attachments were and using the original hardware that we see that it's described in the in, um, invoice from the decorators that still survive in the space, that gives us kind of the technical information about how they were hung, what kind of pleat action would happen. And so it's really a combination of the photograph, the invoice, and the physical evidence. And so Maureen, as you mentioned, in a black and white photo from the 1890s, you can't tell what the, what the color is, but when you look at the documents, when they say the um, satin gold drapes, then you're like, oh, that lighter color in the photo is the gold color. And then you can see on the invoice that I believe that it said that there was red rope tiebacks. And so you know that that's all the trim, all the upholstery and all the fringe that you see is going to be this crimson color. So you're able to use the written documents to kind of fill in and complement what you can see visually in the historic photograph itself. I just, I just love this whole thing when we first started talking about it and you said, well, I have this photograph and we went from the photograph to then, you know, basically redecorate the, the rooms. And I thought, this is great. The evidence in a photo leading to decorative techniques. Did you have to work with special craftspeople to put the... Yes, it's great. I think the the thing that I really admire in my career working in historic house museums is that we are really working with great craftspeople in a variety of trades. A lot of people are working in trades that are not, there's not as many people working in them now. So the people who are, have this great kind of specialized experience are really treasures. And so there's one woman that I've worked with before on previous projects at other institutions, and her name is Natalie Larson. And she specializes in historic upholstery. And she does window treatments and bed hangings and has worked on several um, very significant buildings, including the White House, Mount Vernon, Monticello, and I'm happy to add the Lippitt House onto that. So she really has um, an archive of historic window treatments that she's able to pull on her experience working at other institutions, like some of your listeners might know Victoria Mansion up in Portland, Maine, which is a very similar type of house of Lippitt House, and able to kind of bridge that gap from what's surviving. So I, if I remember correctly, Victoria Mansion in Portland has many original um, window treatments that were preserved and taken down by the owners and preserved. So they didn't kind of fade and, and, and disappear like the ones at Lippitt. But at Lippitt House, we have the hardware that Victoria Mansion doesn't have. And so you can kind of, Natalie has a lot of experience and she pulls that together. But really the most significant thing that is really a barrier to doing any kind of historic facsimile or recreation in historic spaces now is where you can buy the materials. It's very hard to get appropriate materials um, like this, you know, gold silk damask that would be used by the lipids. She, Natalie has these great resources and we needed very long bullion fringe to be like the valance at the top. I believe it was um, 18 inches long and on the commercial market, you just can't buy 18 inch long fringe. I don't know a lot of people that are personally putting a lot of fringe on their windows, 
right now. And so there's not a market. And so she really had uh, great connections to these craftspeople who still have these old trades that is not maybe um, supported by the general commercial market, but does have a niche. And so it's a great resource of working with a craftsperson like Natalie that has the hand skills, the actual sewing ability to make them, but understands the construction and know what was right for the house. And then these connections to these manufacturers. So she has the, the, the gimp, the fringe, the silk, the velvets. <clears throat> that are required to actually create an object in, in, in real life. So if you have a photograph of a, you live in a historic house and you find a photograph of it and you're like, well, gee, I'd love to recreate the look of the house. It is actually possible within reason to actually do that. That's what you've just told me in this, that you took a photograph, you did the research, you found the craftspeople and you recreated the look of the room as it was in the mid 19th century. Yes. And so some spaces have more um, documentation than others, including photographs. And yeah, I mean, sometimes you have to pull the resources that are available and then you might have to fill in the gaps, um, just like historians do anyway, right? You do the research, you find out what contemporaries are doing, and then you try to put your person into that larger perspective based on what you know. And recreating historic interiors is the same way. It's the kind of thing when you look at your notes and the documentation and you know that you had 19 and one six yards of satin damask, right? Well, that's great. And you know, it's gold color, but you don't know exactly maybe what the pattern of the damask is. So it's a lot of information, but when it's time to kind of put, you know, the, the pedal to the metal and actually do, you do kind of have to use a little bit of judgment to fill in those blanks and hopefully other research, you, you know, there's in addition to photographs, I know that's what you love, Maureen, but also historic paintings are also a great visual resource that can help fill in some blanks. So there's a lot of visual resources that really can kind of help you figure out, like, I don't know exactly what was there, but other people had this kind of similar look. And so you are able to kind of fill in those gaps. In any kind of history, whether it's social history or decorative arts history, I don't think that not knowing literally all the answers should keep you from telling a story. And so that's an example of how we incorporate the stories of the servants who lived at Lippitt House into our regular interpretation, just because we don't know everything about the six servants that lived there in 1875 doesn't mean we can't talk about them. And the idea about recreating this historic interior, specifically the um, window hangings in the reception room, just because we don't know what the specific damage pattern was, doesn't mean that we can't recreate it. And the overall effect of having a dressed window really incorporates the aesthetic that the Lippets would have known it looks, quote, right to them. And so I think it gives a more accurate impression of the room in general than just kind of punting and not doing it because you don't know every detail. You look and you weigh the evidence and then you make educated decisions and then try to implement it the best you can. Mm -hmm. But in general, museums try to do things that are reversible. And I will fully admit that as a curator, 
I have worked on, built my research on research started by others and then added to them. Sometimes people get it right, some people get it wrong. And so history is all, always evolving, how you um, interpret the resources. And just because I hung these drapes in the Lippitt House reception room, I think it was in 2016, it doesn't mean that my successor in you know 10 or 15 years might get um, another resource. Maybe there's another stash of photos that come to light and that maybe she will be able to make a more accurate representation. So my quote, my drapes can come down and hers can go up based on evolving research. So I think that's the fun thing about doing research in museums. It's never done. You're always adding to the body of knowledge. Well, there's always stuff that pops up. Like, well, when we could go to shows in January, there's always the ephemera show in Hartford, Connecticut, for instance. And it's always on my calendar to do it. Like, hardly ever have missed it. And you never know what's going to be there. And last, not last year, the year before I went, and a woman in a booth had these pattern books of fabrics from a fabric printing company. And those are cool. Like they're super cool. Yeah. But they're not all in museums. So new stuff is turning up all the time. But if you actually had a pattern book like that from a company that created the fabric, you would actually then be actually able to match the gold, match the pattern. But that's, right, a, exactly. that's a rare thing to actually go that far. That is um, the equivalent of a home run. I mean, I think probably you've heard of, and I have, and it's happened to me a couple times. It doesn't happen the, all, all the time. I had mentioned that textiles are just inherently fragile. And so when you talk about window treatments, they just give up the ghost. They just I mean to disintegrate. They get so worn that the fam- whoever owns it, they just give them away because they're not presentable anymore. The same things happens with the show upholstery on upholstered pieces like sofas and, uh, and armchairs, things like that, the upholstery will get worn out, right? And it's just not doing its job anymore. And so even in the contemporary use of the original owners, people get their furniture recovered, reupholstered, right? And so oftentimes when you see a piece in the 21st century, something from the 19th century, you know, chances are that's not the original upholstery, but you can, you know, luck still reigns. And sometimes when you take off the modern upholstery, you might be fortunate enough to, you know, look at the tack heads underneath and see a um, couple fibers from the original upholstery. Um, I think people have also seen things when you're repainting a a space that um, sometimes you can still get a piece of paint that wasn't scraped off or maybe under around a window surround, you might get a fragment of the original wallpaper. And so once again, in a house like, like the Lippitt house, if you had a fragment of paint and you could look at the photograph, that could really kind of help you see what the original paint scheme was or um, in other houses, maybe what the wallpaper was like. And so once again, um, you can use the archival resources, both visual and in text, but then also don't forget about the physical. You can go together and sometimes all together that can really um, paint a very complete picture. Thank you so much, Carrie, for talking about photography and decorative arts. It's very cool. I love all the things that you can do with a photograph. Thank you for having me, Maureen. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media. Leave me a rating and a review. 
And if you know of a friend or family member who's also interested in family photographs, share this episode with them too. See you next time. I'm thrilled to be offering something new. Photo Investigations. These collaborative one-on-one sessions look at your family photos. You and I meet to discuss your mystery images and find out how each clue and hint might contribute to your family history. And trust me, these images can reveal so much in your research. I have decades of experience in the photo, genealogy, and history industries. This is your chance to learn from me and discover the stories in your family images. You can find out more by going to MaureenTaylor.com and clicking on Family Photo Investigations.